0: Good morning. I'm Bill Russell, Dean of the Graduate School, and it's my privilege today to introduce this year's Madison Medalist. The James Madison Medal was established in 1973 by the Association of Princeton Graduate Alumni to be awarded by Princeton Princeton University as the highest honor bestowed on an alumnus or alumna of the Graduate School. At this afternoon's award luncheon, our honoree will receive a medal with the inscription, 2010 David H. Petraeus, Woodrow Wilson School, most distinguished soldier of his generation and embodiment of Princeton in the nation's service. Former dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, Henry Marie Slaughter, class of 80, now the director of public policy at the State Department, has called General Petraeus one of Princeton's most loyal alumni. As some may know, the general often signs his emails, P-I-T-N-S short, of course, for Princeton in the Nation service, which quite, le- which quite simply... Which quite simply conveys that he truly lives by that motto. To quote retired Brigadier General David Kaufman, who has served with him and is now the president of Georgia Gwinnett College, General Petraeus is the epitome of selfless public service. His dedication, along with his intellectual curiosity, had been evident since his days as a cadet at West Point, where he graduated in the top 5% of his class in 1974. His passions deepened here at Princeton, where he earned his M.P.A. in 1985 and his Ph.D. in 1987 after writing a provocative dissertation titled The American Military and the Lessons of Vietnam. Over the next two-plus deca- decades, General Petraeus would challenge and redefine the definition of leadership in the military. As commanding general of the Command and General Staff College, he led the resurrection of critical thinking about insurgency and counterinsurgency, quite famously publishing the new Army Field Manual that has provided the intellectual foundation for a new generation of officers. He is commanded with distinction at every level, from platoon leader to theater commander. He has served three former United States Presidents, facing crises such as the conflicts in Haiti and Bosnia, the 9-11 attacks, and the initial days of the war in Iraq. Today, he continues to serve under President Obama and leading the Central Command that directs the military efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Equally remarkable is General Petraeus' understanding that effective leadership is an intellectual exercise that requires a deep commitment to learning. He is fundamentally a lifelong learner who does not confine his commitment to intellectual growth to just himself. More than any other senior Army leader, he has encouraged countless young officers to attend graduate school, especially the Wilson School. (laughs) He is actively engaged in the application process for these officers, often following up to be sure they visit the school and meet with a number of faculty members. And Marie Slaughter remarked, I have personally come to know four or five of his pigs, all of whom are going to make their mark as leaders in the military and in broader government service over the course of their careers. Indeed, General Petraeus' talent of grooming future military leaders will benefit the nation for decades to come. In this context, I would like to recognize Marine Officer Barrett Bradstreet, if he would stand. Here. Uh, Uh, Barrett is currently a Ph.D. student in the Woodrow Wilson School. Barrett knows firsthand just how the general lives, shares, and fosters in others his commitment to learning. He recalls their first substantive conversation in Baghdad in 2005. While cruising along the Tigris at a comfortable running speed, the general the general asked him to summarize and assess the scholarship of the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, something that's not easy to do standing still. As Barrett said, General Petraeus wanted to test me, I'm sure, but he also wanted an update on the state of the institution. If he weren't so busy with so many other responsibilities, you might mistakenly think that he had a one-track one mind for Princeton. It's a pleasure to have Barrett with us as long together with Uh, other students and alumni uh, who have the general to thank for strengthening their own commitment to leadership and learning. I regret that Professor Emeritus Richard Ullman could not join us today to help celebrate this occasion. Dick was General Petraeus' thesis advisor, and the two men have remained very close. In fact, while in Iraq, we are told that the general thought nothing of taking time out in the middle of an operation to call on Dick in order to gain perspective on what he was about to do. I'm pleased that the General's wife, Holly, is with us today. As well as a number of uh, members of his team. And now, please join me in welcoming the 2010 Madison Medalist, a man who has devoted his adult life and enormous talents to the service of the people of the United States, with unquestioned integrity, humility, and a passion for excellence and learning that is truly unparalleled. General David Petraeus.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for that warm welcome. Thanks, Dean Russell, for your very kind words and very kind introduction. More importantly, thanks for your great leadership of the national asset that is the graduate school here at Princeton University. Thanks for recognizing a great Marine, Barrett Bradstreet, uh, wonderful example of the kind of intellectual soldiers sailors, marines, and airmen that we have out there who can think as well as fight. Uh, and I want to assure you I had a good run with him this morning and got a good update on the Woodrow Wilson School. <laughs> and he reports it is doing well. Uh, it is an enormous uh, honor to join you all this morning and obviously a special moment to do so as the recipient of the Madison Medal. President Tillman, it's great to see you here today. Where, there she is. Uh, in your orange leather, or maybe pleather probably would be more appropriate. Um, Our university is very fortunate to have you at its helm. We thank you for your tremendous leadership, your superb example, and your continuing impressive vision. Indeed, I have to say I'm very proud to be an alumnus of a university whose president this year encouraged its students, and I quote, to remember that it's a lifelong responsibility to work on behalf of those less fortunate, to break out of the orange bubble and explore the world, to study what fascinates them and what ignites their curiosity, and, and the and is underlined, to be as silly and inventive as they like, so long as what they do doesn't pose harm to themselves or others. (laughs) Madam President, thank you also for reminding us all that Princeton is, and I quote again, a place to live as well as to study, and a place to learn how to live life to its fullest. That Princeton is serious, but it is not somber, and indeed that it is a place that values beauty and freshness and light and the renewal that comes from times of reflection and times of joy. As all here know well, these sentiments have long characterized the ethos of Princeton, and they were prominent among the reasons that I chose to study here, and they're prominent among the reasons that I continue to be proud to be a Princetonian, something I'll talk about a little bit later in my remarks. Congressman Leach, congratulations to you on your selection for the Woodrow Wilson Award. It's great to see you recognized this morning for your decades of service, to our nation and our university, Uh, starting with the Foreign Service of the State Department, taking quite a principled stand early uh, in his career that ended up with him no longer being a member of the State (laughs) Department. (laughs) In 30 impressive years uh, in Congress, uh, where he, more than perhaps anyone else in that that time, crossed the aisle repeatedly uh, as a professor here at the Woodrow Wilson School, Uh, No need to mention your time at Harvard's Kennedy School. (laughs) (laughs) And currently, of course, is the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Congratulations again to you. And I know that you're joined from a a number of individuals from your class, the great class of 1964. Uh, Yeah. Uh, You can spot them because of their nice sartorial wear here. Uh, A class, coincidentally, that made me an honorary member last spring. Uh, In fact, I want to reassure all of my classmates that I still have the stylish blazer that you gave me. Right here. I know there's a great occasion out there to wear it, but it hasn't come up just yet. (laughs) But again, it is great to be back at Princeton for any reason, uh, but particularly for this one. In truth, I never imagined, I truly never imagined when I was a student that I'd someday be the one at the front of the room offering remarks. Indeed, that was the last thing on my mind when I was studying here. In fact, returning to Princeton for today's occasion could easily tempt one to feel, you know, a little bit important. (laughs) But were that temptation to strike, I would recall a cautionary tale that the great General Jack Vesey used to tell about himself as a reminder to remain humble in such situations. The time was 1982, and General Vesey had just assumed his new duties as the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, culminating over four decades in uniform that began with service as a young First Sergeant in Italy in World War II and included earning the Distinguished Service Cross for heroism some 25 years later when his battalion's fire base in Vietnam was nearly overrun. Now here he was, serving as the senior officer of the greatest military in the world. And he and his wife were invited to attend a performance at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts where they were seated in the presidential box and treated royally the entire night. He was, therefore, feeling understandably good about his station in life, and perhaps even a little bit important, as he and his wife left the center at the end of the evening and stood waiting for their car. Just as the car pulled up, General Vesey saw retired General J. Lawton Collins, a legendary former Army chief who had earned the nickname Lightning Joe as a hard-charging, highly decorated Corps commander in World War II. On seeing General Collins, General Vesey immediately went over to him, held out his hand, and said, Good evening, General Collins. I'm General Jack Vesey, the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's great to see you, sir. Whereupon General Collins shook General Vesey's hand, looked him up and down, and said, Vesey, get me a cap. <laughs> Well, the first, time, the first time I heard General Vesey tell that story, of course, someone in the audience immediately asked him, Well, what did you do, sir? Well, General Vesey said, I got him a cab. <laughs> and I want to assure you that if anyone needs a cab later today, <laughs> I'll be out front doing my duty. Well, thanks for laughing. You know the deal. When you reach this station in life, you're only as good as the material they give you. In reality, being in Princeton classmates back in the 1980s taught me a bit about maintaining one's intellectual humility as well. And as I confessed during the baccalaureate address last spring, in fact, I had my share of early struggles here. Professor Bob Willig's advanced microeconomics class in particular comes to mind. Now, I hadn't taken a true basic economics course as an undergraduate. I was pre-med, of all things, at West Point. And I actually didn't know about supply and demand curves, what each represented, which went up and which went down. Heck, I didn't even know the difference between micro and macroeconomics. And it had been a few years since I'd used higher level math as well. So here I was enrolled in the advanced graduate level microeconomics course. I'm not making this up. And it was tough. And I had to work through Paul Samuelson's classic basic economics text at the same time that I was going through Professor Willig's advanced graduate level course. In any event, I obviously survived and I can now affirm that all the hard work was worth it. And that's a tribute to Professor Willig and all the other professors and staff members who helped me become a proud graduate of this university. And I should note that with us this morning was another member also doing the PhD Uh, track here, who assured me that his first semester was equally rocky at the Woodrow Wilson School. (laughs) On a personal note, I want to single out one of my most wonderful mentors over the years, and was mentioned already by the dean, uh, my dissertation advisor, Professor Dick Ullman. As all know, a key strength, perhaps the key strength of Princeton, has always been its professors, devoted to scholarship, teaching, and mentoring rather than preparing for that night's cable news appearance. Not that there's anything wrong with that, just so long as it's not the essence of the organization. In any event, it's the university's professors, as you all know, who make these hallowed halls so special. Yep, students do some of that too, but it's the professors who have always gone out of their way to support us during our time here and who often sacrifice their research and projects to help us with ours. Professor Dick Ullman personified these qualities. I remain grateful to him for that to this day, and I suspect that virtually all the graduates here with us this morning had similar experiences with faculty members like him during their time at Princeton. Indeed, I'm sure that all of us here on Alumni Day share a sense of gratitude toward the world's greatest faculty, and I'd ask that you join me in thanking them for all that they've done for so many of us over the years. reflecting on my time here as you know one understandably does in approaching such occasions I was reminded indeed of how wonderful Princeton is for all of us how special it is to me personally and how proud I am to this day to be an alumnus of this great university in fact I decided to list a few of the reasons I'm proud to be a Princetonian and I'd like to share some of them with you I am, for example, proud of the culture of inquiry that Princeton fosters and proud of the culture of debate and conversation that flourishes here. I'm proud, needless to say, to be associated with a university that attracts a truly exceptional student body and an equally exceptional faculty and staff. I'm proud of the natural and man-made beauty of the campus and of how generations of Princeton alumni and university leaders and staff have preserved and improved that beauty. I'm proud to be connected with a university that includes in its faculty and its student body important representation of the diversity in America, and indeed the world, that has been among our nation's greatest strengths. On that note, I'm proud to be a graduate of a university in which a Palestinian American and a Jewish American can play together on the same basketball team. Of course, I'm even more proud that that team has a one loss record of 20 and 2. Congratulations on the victory over Yale last night. (laughs) I should note, as an aside, I'm proud to hear that the Woodrow Wilson School is going to establish a Center for Security Studies. Uh, That was decided, I think, earlier this week, and I offer congratulations to the former dean and to the present dean, Anne-Marie Slaughter and Chris Paxson. Well done to you. I'm proud to be a graduate of a university that has the country's finest ROTC program and that kept that program throughout the Vietnam War, unlike several others. and it was great great to spend time with the members of that program yesterday and some of those were with us this morning as well indeed i'm proud that princeton prepares all of its students so admirably to make a difference in our nation and in our world by helping them develop those qualities it takes to be leaders attributes that president tillman so eloquently outlined at the beginning of the school year in her remarks at the opening exercises and again i quote some of those a devotion to critical thinking over ideology the self-confidence that it takes to change your mind in the face of new evidence the capacity to speak the truth as you understand it a deep respect for learning as opposed to uninformed opinion and the strength of character that grows out of humility and compassion for your fellow human beings and thanks for putting voice to all of those very important thoughts well done Well, those are indeed critical aspects of leadership. And given that we have so many current and future leaders from all walks of life here this morning, I thought I'd use the remainder of my time this morning, before the Q&A, to share with you a few thoughts on leadership. In this case, thoughts specifically on strategic leadership, that is, leadership exercised at the most senior level of large organizations. In my view, a strategic leader of any organization or group has a solemn obligation to make sound and ethical decisions and to do so based on a continuous cycle of learning. That obligation necessarily entails several critical tasks that all revolve around big ideas. Working hard to develop the right big ideas, communicating those big ideas effectively, and then overseeing their implementation. Beyond that, in the course of that implementation, a leader must also seek and capture feedback, best practices, worst practices, lessons that need to be learned, and so on. Feedback that enables refinement of the big ideas, communication of those refinements, and oversight of their implementation. This then comprises a fundamental cycle not at all difficult to understand, but often very difficult to carry out properly. This morning I'd like to walk you through those elements of strategic leadership using our experiences in Iraq to highlight how they worked in practice as we executed the surge. Not just the surge of forces into Iraq in the spring of 2007, but far more importantly the surge of ideas, big ideas. The truth is that the surge of ideas was even more important than the surge of forces, though clearly the increase in forces enabled us to implement the new ideas, the big ideas, much more rapidly than otherwise might have been the case. The first task of strategic leadership then, and probably the most difficult of all, is the task of getting the big ideas right. Developing the right intellectual constructs to guide the organization's approach is critical. This typically requires an ability by the organization's senior leaders to think creatively and critically about complex challenges and quite often to embrace new concepts, in addition to constantly testing one's assumptions and basic thinking. In my experience, big ideas come from a focused process in which strategic leaders and their key advisors collaboratively develop those ideas over time analyzing refining evaluating and challenging their concepts to converge on the right ones big ideas don't fall out of a tree and hit you in the head like newton's apple rather they tend to start as kernels of little ideas and they are then gradually developed augmented and refined through the process of analysis study and discussion In the case of Iraq, for example, it took several years to develop and refine the big ideas that guided our efforts when we launched the surge. The biggest of the big ideas there was that the Iraqi people were the decisive terrain. The human terrain was the decisive terrain. And that together with our Iraqi partners, we had to focus on securing and serving them, on earning their respect and gaining their support. Several other big ideas flowed from this. First, we realized that we couldn't adequately secure the people by commuting to the fight from big bases. We had to live with the people we were going to secure. Second, we recognized that we couldn't just clear an area and then leave it and move on to the next. Indeed, we had to commit the resources to hold and rebuild areas once they'd been cleared. Third, we realized that we could not just kill or capture all the enemies of security and stability in Iraq. Rather, we also had to identify and reach out to reconcilable elements of the insurgency. Each of those big ideas, and a number of others in the counterinsurgency guidance I issued, such as being first with the truth, living our values, promoting initiative, and institutionalizing the process of learning and adapting, and so on, proved effective in Iraq. And today, despite innumerable continuing challenges and drama and despite periodic attacks, we see the lowest levels of violence in Iraq since the beginning of our operations there, with the improvements in security creating the space for the economic, diplomatic, and political progress that has also been achieved, albeit to varying degrees. Clearly, there is still much hard work to be done in Iraq and there are still serious security threats, political challenges, economic difficulties, and social issues. But there has been significant progress, and it came not just because we had extra coalition forces and, in time, extra Iraqi forces. The progress came even more because of how coalition and Iraqi commanders employed the extra forces and because they were prepared to exploit opportunities that presented themselves. Getting the big ideas right was crucial in guiding that employment, just as getting the big ideas right is crucial in any endeavor. In fact, if one doesn't succeed in getting the big ideas right in an effort like that in Iraq, operational plans will be built on shaky or even flawed foundations. And in that case, no amount of additional troops or other resources can produce success. While getting the big ideas right is critical, simply developing them is not enough. Indeed, the second task of a strategic leader is to communicate those big ideas effectively. In effect, to educate the organization's leaders and others on the big ideas, hopefully leading those individuals to embrace the big ideas. To be effective, communication should flow in multiple directions. For those of us in uniform, it should flow upward through the chain of command, downward through our units and staffs, and outward through coalition partners, interagency elements, and the press. The most important direction, though, is downward, communicating the big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of one's organization. That's what matters most, as it is the leaders and units within the organization that will turn the big ideas into reality on the ground. In any field or sector, there are multiple means and venues through which strategic leaders can communicate within an organization. An effective communication is a matter of identifying and using every one of those means. In Iraq, communication of the new big ideas began the day I took command, in my change of command speech, in fact, and then in a letter I sent to all of our leaders and troopers. Beyond that, we rapidly incorporated the new big ideas into our joint military and civilian campaign plan, it was joint, and in a host of addresses, command letters, presentations at commanders' conferences, briefings to superior and higher headquarters, press conferences and press releases, meetings with high-level visitors, and even congressional hearings. Indeed, sometimes especially through congressional (laughs) hearings. Again, weaving the big ideas into every possible communication opportunity and forum reinforces the ideas throughout and even beyond one's organization. Over time, relentless communication of the big ideas takes hold, and those responsible for executing them, again, the most important audience, as well as those witnessing that execution come to understand what we're trying to do and why. The third function of strategic leadership, overseeing implementation of the big ideas, is, of course, absolutely critical as well. Without proper execution, needless to say, getting the big ideas right and communicating them effectively are for naught. Thus, strategic leaders have to personally oversee the conduct of operations, to be present at various points of decision, to see various activities for themselves, and in some cases, to conduct or direct them and to identify and eliminate obstacles to the successful execution of the big ideas. Now this shouldn't be taken to imply micromanagement for implementing big ideas typically requires empowering people and organizations to execute the ideas at their levels without the need for constant approval. Indeed, empowering subordinate leaders to exercise considerable initiative as we sought to do in Iraq It's often observed that all insurgencies are local, and thus all counterinsurgency operations have to be fine-tuned to local circumstances as well. Consequently, leaders at lower levels have to be empowered to operationalize such big ideas as securing the population, promoting reconciliation, employing money as a weapon system, and so on in ways that work for their local circumstances. And that's what we sought to do in Iraq, empowering brigade and battalion commanders in particular, but also the so-called strategic lieutenants. Called that because young leaders at tactical levels often took actions with strategic consequences. In so doing, we sought to enable those leaders to turn big ideas at my level into real action at their level. In fact, I realized we were making progress in that regard when I saw a sign in a company command post in Baghdad that read, and I quote, in the absence of guidance or orders, figure out what they should have been and execute aggressively. (laughs) Not only did I take that sign back to the headquarters that day, I also incorporated that direction into the portion of the counterinsurgency guidance that began with the admonition, promote initiative. When strategic leaders get the big ideas right, communicate them effectively, and then oversee their proper implementation, we then have the privilege of seeing ideas turned into reality to bring about impressive results. But as this takes place, it's also the responsibility of strategic leaders to ensure that best practices, as well as worst practices and lessons that need to be learned are captured, shared, and where appropriate, institutionalized. Indeed, the long-term effectiveness of any organization, whether a military unit, a civilian government agency, or a business, often depends on its ability to identify and institutionalize adaptations that have proven effective and need widespread implementation. In fact, those of us in uniform have worked hard to ensure that our military services are learning organizations. We have, for example, established lesson-learned centers in our organizational structures, and we've developed formal processes to capture best practices in order to refine our doctrinal concepts, the curricula in our military schools, and the scenarios at our combat training centers. Needless to say, that effort is of huge importance, and it has a great deal to do with whether our organizations continue to learn and adapt or get left behind as others, including our adversaries, prove more adaptive. That then is the essence of strategic leadership. And my point today is that this wonderful university does a superb job of equipping its graduates with the skills, knowledge, and attributes needed in those who may, someday in the future, exercise strategic leadership. We face numerous challenges at home and abroad as we embark on a new decade. And whether here in the United States or in Afghanistan or Iraq, we need strategic leaders who can work with partners to help chart the proper course by identifying the right big ideas, communicating them effectively, overseeing their implementation, and capturing lessons in the course of that implementation. This room is filled with businessmen and women and public servants who have given significantly of their energy and expertise to provide the kind of strategic leadership I've just discussed. And I know that there are many future such leaders among us as well, because that's the nature of the old Nassau community. It's filled with Princeton graduates who are passionately committed to addressing the challenges of the day. As I've explained this morning I'm very proud to be part of this community and I'm always encouraged by our shared commitment to serve our nation and indeed the nations of the world. Over half a century ago Adlai Stevenson class of 1922 returned to Princeton to address the class of 1954. Perhaps a few of you were here then. During his remarks he offered the following admonition. Don't forget when you leave why you came, he said. And I'd encourage each of you here today, whether you're part of the class of 1954 or the class of 2004 or any of the other classes represented here this morning, to go and stand one more time on the front lawn of this great university, a lawn framed by tigers under the sandstone visage of Nassau Hall, through which many of those who helped build this nation carried our nation's early burdens. And remember why you came to Princeton. Remember the refrain of our alma mater, our hearts will give while we shall live. And for a moment, remember the fire we all felt as we became citizens of Tiger Nation, a fire that, will, that always propels us forward in our commitment to serve. As you do so, be proud to be part of a community that more than lives up to its motto, Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for that, and I think we do have time for questions, Dean. And I think people will come to you with microphones and allow you to ask questions.
0: Please. Thank you very much for that wonderful speech. Uh, I'm sure I echo everybody's feelings that it was really inspiring. My question is, in Afghanistan, they now have uh, started to limit air strikes for the purpose of avoiding civilian casualties. That's well within the framework of military law or international law of what civilian casualties are considered acceptable. Do you think that this will now change uh, military law of fighting to become a new precedent of what's acceptable or not.
1: The the short answer to that is, I think it will inform uh, how we conduct operations in places where there is the potential for civilian casualties and where you are in a stage of those operations where civilian casualties can literally undermine the entire effort that you're undertaking. This is a case where a tactical decision uh, that results in, in civilian casualties can have strategic consequences. And candidly, we had reached the point last spring where it was evident that we had to limit the use of air power. We were using, it I w- it wasn't indiscriminate at all. It was in line with international law. We have lawyers that are part of the targeting process, but in some cases, particularly the what are called troops in contact, uh, and it's just a tough situation. But before you drop a bomb on a house, if you don't know who's in that house, uh, you've really gotta think about not just the tactical consequences, to your unit, although that has to be paramount. We're never going to take, you know, we're not going to tie both hands behind the back of our troopers. But they do have to think about whether it might be wise to try to break contact and fight another day, or take the chance that there may be civilians in that house, uh, and then hand the enemy a propaganda tool, uh, which the enemy will beat us around the head and shoulders with, and undermine the entire strategic underpinnings uh, of our effort, and that's the point we'd reached last spring. Uh, the commander of ISAF at that time, General McKiernan, published a tactical directive, as it was called, governing the use of uh, fixed-wing and rotary-wing helicopter and, uh, and, and airplane uh, close-air support, uh, also indirect fire. Uh, and I think that this, this has indisputably made a huge difference in reducing civilian casualties. There's no question we have the numbers to prove that. And over time, we're going to be able to beat the enemy around the head and shoulders with the civilian casualties that he is causing, uh, because we have the numbers to show that as well. And that will, as we develop an information, our Information Operations Task Force, uh, help us to show the people that we care much more about the people than, uh, than the Taliban and the other extremist elements do. Perhaps I might then just give you a perspective on Afghanistan for what it's worth. Um, because the way I would explain where we are in that, recognizing that we're some eight, nine years into this, this is either the longest war in our history or soon will be. And, you know, there's no question about why we went there. I mean, there should be no question whatsoever that the 9-11 attacks were planned in Kandahar. The initial training of the the, uh, terrorists was conducted in training camps in eastern Afghanistan, all by al-Qaeda al-Qaeda senior leadership before they moved to Hamburg and to the U.S. flight schools. Uh, And it is obviously a hugely important interest, as President Obama explained in his speech at West Point, vital interest that we not allow al-Qaeda or other transnational extremist elements to reestablish sanctuaries in Afghanistan such as they had before. But what we've done over the course of the last year, frankly, is to, to finally get the inputs right for Afghanistan. We didn't have the structures, the organizational structures that we needed there. Information Operations Task Force is one of them, by the way. We didn't have a three-star operational level headquarters. We knew what we needed. We had built these in Iraq, um, but we hadn't quite gotten there uh, in Afghanistan. So we helped build the organizations, the structures needed for a comprehensive, coordinated, civil-military counterinsurgency campaign. We then got the all-star team in, in charge of those. Organizations. General McChrystal uh, as Com ISAF. By the way, he wasn't U.S., he wasn't, the original Com ISAF wasn't dual-hatted as a U.S. commander, which we fixed as well shortly after I got to CENTCOM. Uh, And then uh, all of the other leaders that are there, and now there's even a new special representative of the Secretary General. Stephan Mastura, who was with us in Iraq, a number of these folks were, went through this in Iraq, and you have to be careful applying lessons from Iraq. You have to do it with rigor and understanding the local circumstances, to be sure, but some lessons certainly apply. Then those leaders, uh, w- with those organizations, with other help, got the concepts right, we think. One of those is indeed a refinement of the tactical directive. General McChrystal also published counterinsurgency guidance. Uh, appropriate for Afghanistan and a host of other, even a tactical driving directive. We were driving in such an extraordinary way. You know, if you think that Toad in the Wind of the Willows was a you know, road hog, you should see what we used to be. And um, you know, we're driving against the traffic, we're pushing people out of the way. We made more enemies just driving around town. Uh, we might. So again, this kind of thing, we had to get the concepts right, the big ideas. Um, and then we needed the resources to enable that. That came out of uh, President Obama's speech, 30,000 more military, tripling the number of civilians from State Department, and again, Anne-Marie Slaughter's working the big ideas there in, in state as the director of policy planning, uh, and, and so forth. More money for the Afghan security forces and additional authority for them, another 100,000 over the next two years, and so forth. So we've gotten the inputs right, and now we are embarking on producing output. Uh, And the Marja operation is the first of what will be a lengthy campaign, and it's going to be hard. You know, people constantly ask me, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I say, I'm neither. I don't use those words anymore. Uh, I am realistic, and reality is that it's going to be hard, and it's going to be hard all the time. We're going to have tough losses, but it's a hugely important mission, and we have have to get on with it. So that's sort of where we are, and you know it, it is doubly difficult because, of course, we have been at it for eight or nine years again uh, at this point. And, uh, and, and again, the prospect is that it is going to take time. So, but to come back again to where you started, um, we cannot afford civilian casualties in that environment at this point. Uh, in the endeavor. This is not the fight to Baghdad where it's conventional combat anymore. It's not the fight to get rid of the Taliban initially that we did um, where it, you know, the civilians all leave and you know it's pretty much uh, conventional fighting. This is now a fight among the people and the Taliban are willing to use civilians uh, you know, and to try to interpose themselves into civilians and sometimes we think to use them as human shields and we just have to contend with that and deal with that and uh, that's indeed what we're trying to do. Yeah, I'm sorry, who has a microphone, I guess, is it? Uh, Go ahead, there you go. If you all can raise your hands then, and then we'll go over there.
0: Uh, General, this is a question about the uh, political debate on withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan that started even before the troops went o- over. And you know, we view 18 months as a long time, yet we're fighting an enemy that measures time much differently than us. Uh, decades, centuries, and how do we address this dichotomy as we go on the road to success? Yeah, no, you're
1: exactly right. You know, there's all these sayings about, uh, you know, the Americans have the watches, but we have the time. Uh, or the one I always like best, I learned it here, as a matter of fact, from a great, the greatest, I think, Afghan scholar at the time, uh, but he used to quote, the Pashto waited 100 years to take revenge, and they cursed themselves for their impatience. Uh, um, But that's the situation we're in. Now, I think what you have to recall, and I don't know, I've tried actually personally to do this. I know Secretary of State has and other Secretary of Defense. You know, President Obama and I was there at that speech. It was a privilege to go up there with him and so forth and, you know, my alma mater seven miles from my hometown and all this. And um, he was trying to convey two messages. One is a message of commitment, resolution, of additional forces, civilians, money, um, will, coalition, and all the rest of that. But the other message, uh, equally important, urgency. And the target of that message wasn't just domestic public opinion here or Capitol Hill. It was also Afghan leaders. That they have to get invested. Car- President Karzai has to be the commander in chief of this. By the way, there was a wonderfully insightful article, either in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, the other day, about how General McChrystal went to President Karzai on the eve of the Marja operation with his war cabinet, and you know they said, "Mr. President, uh, we need your order to do this," and Karzai said, "Gosh, nobody's ever asked me for this before." Well, you know, this is, if you want to truly partner, then by golly, that's exactly what you have to do. It's not easy. It's a lot easier just to do stuff on your own. Candidly, in Iraq, in the early days of the surge, the situation was so desperate that we just did things. And then I would go to the woodshed, you know, and get some wax from whoever it was that day that wanted to have at us. But then ultimately, very quickly, you know, we started partnering with Prime Minister Maliki and so forth. Because, again, it has to be their fight. And so that was part of the message as well. But we have to understand that what the president was talking about in July 2011 is quite carefully calibrated. Uh, What happens then is that we begin a process of transitioning based on conditions. You recall me saying that always, conditions-based during Iraq. We begin a process of transition based on conditions to hand off some tasks to Afghan forces. We don't race for the exits. We don't give them the ball and sprint off the field. We just start that process. And we begin a process of a responsible uh, drawdown. And I think that's actually, you know, appropriate, prudent, and a a wise approach. So over over there. I'm sorry. Oh, you have a... And then we'll come back to the mic that's over here, whoever that is. Yes, sir. Hi. um, The... um... My understanding of the original, one of the original goals of the uh, surge in Iraq was to give the political factions their space to make some kind of accommodation. And news reports that I'm seeing currently uh, lead me to believe that they're not really taking uh, advantage of that. In fact, it looks like they're going backwards um, in terms of allowing people to run for office and so on. Uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on what the political situation mm-hmm. there is. In, in some cases, candidly, it's, you know, I, we're always tempted when we're at CENTCOM. We want to say, well, welcome to our world. Um, I mean, this is sort of, this is Iraq, and, and this is not Western democracy. It's irocracy. Uh, it and it is you know high political drama at its finest. Now I know that of course Washington is you know a bastion of bipartisanship and comedy and isn't it, Congressman? Um, um, but the and there and this has been worrisome. What's happened there in the last couple of weeks, without question, because it is. Are, by the way, are we? I probably should have asked what the press rules are here. But anyway, there's been some concern there, shall we say. Um, there are neighbors in the region there that are meddling in what they're doing. Um, and the way to do this, by the way, the uh, way I always answer, is say, you know, it's not whether we're concerned. This isn't, that's not the issue. The issue is whether the Iraqis are concerned. And the Iraqis are concerned about uh, some of this manipulation that has taken place to take some of the leader, uh, some of the uh, candidates off the list. Now, the fact is, there are, I think there are tens of thousands of candidates. I mean, it's a vast list, and they've taken out several hundred of them. Two are quite prominent uh, on Prime Minister Alawi's, uh list in particular, and that, again, the Iraqis are concerned about this. But at the end of the day, I think they're going to muddle through it, as they always do, uh, or have to this point, touch wood. Uh, the elections David back Campbell. in January 2009 for the provincial uh, Councils uh, were judged free and fair, actually, by the United Nations. There will be a lot of attempts, uh, undoubtedly, to influence things. Uh, it is that region, if you will. Uh, but I think that it will work through. Uh, and again, what has enabled it certainly has been the progress in, in security. Now, you know, I've gone to this point without PowerPoint slides. Uh, this is an unnatural experience for a four star <laughs> Army general. And without laser pointer, you know, this is the tool of the modern general. Um, And the the withdrawal symptoms have reached the point that I have to resort to PowerPoint. You know, We joke that there's, you know, the First Amendment free speech and all this. There's a little asterisk, and if you read the fine print, it says, you know, all U.S. Army four-star generals have an inalienable right to the use of PowerPoint slides. So if you could throw the security incident slide up, I would like to show you, indeed, you know, in truth, what our troopers accomplished. Um, I would also point out, and I think we have a walk-around mic, um, that there actually have been extraordinary uh, political, economic, and social advances. In particular, in the economic world, I'm sure there's some big oil folks out here. There are tens of billions of dollars' worth of oil contracts that have been signed in the last six to eight months, and that's made possible by the fact that the level of violence has been reduced so dramatically. Uh, this shows from January 2004 to this past Friday night, the level of violence. It's basically what are called security incidents. These are attacks or attempted attacks of any type. And the bottom line is that you know, we had a period back here where you had something like 220 attacks per day. Just think about that. It's a staggering amount of violence. You know, there were 53 dead bodies every 24 hours just in Baghdad alone in December 2006. 53 in the nation's capital. And then I remember I took command in February, people would call and say, hey, how are they doing on legislation? And I said, you know, these, I said, they're just trying to survive. Um, But you know, what we were able to do, this is the period of the surge, by the way, the violence went up as we got in more forces. And that is gonna happen in, in Afghanistan. As we go on the offensive, the enemy, when you take away the enemy's sanctuaries and safe havens, the enemy fights back and it's hard and we took tough casualties. But then we were able to start driving down the level of violence. Then we also, the militia decided it was time to take a knee for a couple of different reasons, some of which was that their reputation was severely damaged. And thankfully, all of this happened right before we had to testify in September 2007. (laughs) The great great Ambassador Ryan Crocker did a fellowship at the Woodrow Wilson School, I might add, as decisive in his career as it was in mine. But anyway, the level of violence, and now you're down from 220 attacks per day, with Iraqi data thrown in, down to under 20 attacks per day. In fact, some of these weeks most recently, quite a few of them have been down under 15. Now, don't get me wrong, we're concerned about political violence right now. In fact, they're taking out some leaders here and there. they are onesies and twosies, but this thing, that can, can be contagious. Uh, and, it, and it then can morph into sectarian violence, again, if, if security forces can't keep a lid on this. So there are certainly are concerns there, uh, but we do think our assessment right now, in fact, we had a very good session with the Vice President yesterday, uh, headed an NSC meeting on Iraq. We do think that we can continue to draw down our forces uh, to change the mission as will take place at the end of August. from combat mission to uh, advise and assist, as it's termed, uh, to come down from the current 96,000 is where we were today, 96,400, uh, down to uh, under 50,000 or so by that point in time. So touch, touch wood, if you would, on that, though, please. Uh, and we're going to... Where's the, the mic right here? I'm sorry. If you can go ahead and just position the mics, that'd be great. Hi. I
0: have a two-prong question. One, do you subscribe to having exit criteria before we deploy or occupy a country, and two, what would, how would you craft exit criteria for Afghanistan?
1: Well, I think the better way to put that is should you have reasonably defined objectives, uh, I think. Um, You know, you don't, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to achieve certain ends, um, and getting those right uh, is pretty important. Uh, You know, I have a whole little, I have PowerPoint slides, in fact, that that lay out (laughs) You know, what's the job of the CENTCOM commander? One of them is to make sure that you have the same understanding of the mission that the President has. This is not inconsequential. Uh, This – we have missed this a couple of times in the past. Um, And so that's hugely important. And then, of course, you have to be pretty forthright in saying, okay, if you want me to accomplish this, this is what we think we need to do that. If you want to give us more, we can reduce the risk. If you want to give us less, we increase the risk. But you have to understand that because you – You know, the President has different uh, constraints, concerns, and so forth. Our views should be our best professional military advice. It shouldn't be what I think the Congress of the United States is going to want to hear or what the White House is going to want to hear or something like that. But then we have to understand that the White House might have different, again, different thoughts. That is okay. That's the way the system should work. But what we ought to agree on is objectives. And one of the real products of this lengthy uh, process, which I thought was very productive, by the way. Again, I'm a guy who beats ideas around, and I thought it was wonderful to be able to have nine or ten sessions with the President of the United States, many of which were two and a half, three hours long, to challenge ideas, including what are our objectives. And we narrowed the focus, actually. We decided, you know, we probably don't need to turn Afghanistan Afghanistan uh, into Switzerland in two years. but, no, we did actually, and we focused the effort, and, and, and that has been very, very helpful you know, to, to those of us in, in my line of work and also the ambassador. General Crystal's crafted his campaign I mean, plan, uh, modified it as a result, and so on. So I think, again, that's the issue, because, of course, as you achieve your objectives, then you can start to, to thin out. By the way, you don't, you don't just leave. What you want to do is thin out, so you can make sure that the uh, progress that you fought so hard to achieve can be sustained yeah. by those can, to you whom you 're giving the responsibility um, in, the in in the case of Afghanistan, obviously, what we want to be able to ensure fight. first and foremost is as I mentioned earlier, it doesn 't become once again a sanctuary for transnational extremists, uh, and then uh, we want to have a country of course that can can handle its own uh, tasks that can secure its own population that can provide uh, a better life for them over time that can Uh, provide governance that earns legitimacy in the eyes of the people by not being uh, corrupt or uh, exploitive uh, in nature and that kind of thing. But but it's – that's limited. Again, we're not trying to achieve something that's just completely out of the realms of possibility in Afghanistan. We have pretty clear eyes about uh, the situation there, what 30 years of war has done to that country, the lack of human capital because of that war and because of the damage to the education system and so forth. In fact, actually, I was asked by Secretary Rumsfeld on the way home from my second tour in Iraq to come home through Afghanistan. Uh, And so we did, and we took a team over there, took a look at some things for him, came back and gave him, him an assessment. And this is September 2005. And if you look at the levels of violence there then, they were quite low. This is the war we were winning was the way it was pitched. It was the good war. Iraq was the bad war, of course. Um, But so there we were, and we came back, and I said, well, you know, Mr. Secretary, uh, here's a bunch of recommendations on some things, and they they followed some of those. Um, But I said, one additional observation for what it's worth uh, is I think this is going to be the longest campaign of the long war, which was the term at at that time. And uh, that didn't elicit widespread applause on the third floor of the Pentagon, but it was my view, and for what it's worth, that has proven, I think, to be prophetic. It's, it's hard, but we have important interests there, and we need to do all that we can to achieve those. Let me come to the center mic right there. There's a hand.
0: Thank you, General Petraeus. I'd like to go back to your comments, if I might. You talked about the implementation phase and how um, part of strategic leadership is enabling folks down the chain to turn those ideas into action. I'm wondering if there are any formal processes or even informal processes that do the same thing in reverse, that bring colonels of the big idea up to your level. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely,
1: they do. And is this mic? Our mics are still on. Yeah, without question. Um, we have these centers for lessons learned in all of our different military services, and they actually put lessons learned teams out with the units uh, we have other specialized teams that we have put out there. In fact, we took a very uh, skilled group of former special mission unit operators, some still serving, some that were in retirement, brought them back and put them out with units as well to, to identify the tactics, techniques, and procedures that were working and needed to be transferred to those who were going to come out uh, in subsequent rotations. We enabled those who are sitting in the United States waiting to deploy to virtually look over the shoulders of those who were downrange, who they were going to replace. So there's a battalion or a brigade in Iraq or Afghanistan. They have a website. You always have a, a website. All the orders are published on it, the situation reports, the intelligence analysis, what happened that day, all the rest of that. And the units in the states can actually look at that. They can virtually look over the shoulder. They can actually do the orders process, the mission analysis and everything else along with the unit that's downrange and, and share back and forth. We established virtual communities. We used to call it, you know, you've heard about the band of brothers. Well, we originally had the band of bloggers. Uh, this was, these are a couple of great captains up at West Point in the early days of virtual communities and so forth, and they established a website called companycommander.com. Well, you know, in our infinite wisdom over time, in fact, I was in charge of the organization at the time that had all these assets, we said, hey, we're going to fund your system administrator. In fact, not only do we we want you to continue it, and we won't, you know, we're not going to adjudicate on this thing or anything like that. But we will fund someone who will enable this to be even more effective than it is, give you bigger communication pipes, and all the rest of that. When, when I was the commander at Leavenworth, I think we were funding something like 65 different virtual communities of practice out there. Uh, and then, on top of all that, for what it's worth, senior leaders obviously have to go out. And my technique was we'd go on every, every week, at least twice during a week, we'd go on what was called battlefield circulation. We'd go out and actually walk a patrol with the unit, uh, sit down, go through a portion of the day with the unit. And I would then always arrange to have company commanders, captains, uh, gather together, just me and the captains, nobody else, everybody out of the room, and would sit and eat lunch or dinner or whatever it was, or just sit and chat. And those were extraordinarily valuable, because it's the captains at the end of the day who are the ones, they have enough time on the ground, they're not just brand new lieutenants with impressions. These are individuals, some of whom, by the time I was the commander in Iraq, had three full tours in Iraq. They were in their third year in Iraq, and they knew something, and they were not reticent about sharing it, nor should they have been. Uh, I used to always say, you know, by the way, at the end of it, I would always say, if all else fails, try david.petraeus at us.army.mil, and several of them did. Um, So that was, I mean, again, there were all kinds of efforts to try to get from the bottom up to identify uh, what we needed to to do to adapt the big ideas or to uh, shape our policies and orders. Uh, to enable them. If I could just show one last slide. I, we'd like to end with this slide right here. Uh, it's a pretty special one. It's a re-enlistment ceremony on the 4th of July, 2008. Some of you will have seen this. It was actually in the front page of the New York Times. And uh, this is the headquarters uh, that I was privileged to occupy at that time as one of Saddam's old palaces. Uh, and this is what 1,215 young soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, looks like when they've got their right hand in the air re-enlisting for another tour in their respective service. Uh, I was privileged to be the reenlistment officer that day, and it was just truly extraordinary. This is, by the way, before the economic downturn, these folks had options if they had, you know, wanted to leave the service, so it wasn't just that they were uh, desperate to stay in. And they're doing this, what's extraordinary about this is that they're raising their right hand in a combat zone, re-enlisting. they were already in many cases on their third full year tour uh, in Iraq and or Afghanistan, and they're reenlisting knowing that they're going to be going downrange again by raising their right hand, and yet they still were here. They did that, we always used to say, why are they doing it? You know, and you know it wasn't just the fact that the bonuses are tax-free in Iraq, I can assure you that much. Um, they do it, I think, because they have a sense that they are part of something larger than self. Uh, they do it because they are fiercely devoted to the individuals on their right and left and they don't ever want to let them down. They do it because they, they think that they're part of, you know, Again, organizations that are regionally special. But they also do it because their fellow American citizens in this war have gotten it right. And regardless of what people think about Iraq or Afghanistan, and we fight for the right of people to have dissenting opinions, regardless of what they think about those, uh, they support our troopers. Uh, You're all part of that. I can't tell you what an enormous privilege it is to serve with individuals like that and what an extraordinary honor it is to stand before you today. Thank you again very much.
0: We'll have a short break and come back at 10.30 for uh, the Woodrow Wilson Award winner. Thank you.